We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by Marshall Kosloff. Marshall is the executive, is an executive producer at On Deck. He's got a great podcast on these topics that you should make sure to find, make sure to find if you are interested in more of Marshall's thoughts on these issues. It's called The Deep End. He's also a media fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's co-host of one of my absolute favorite podcasts, The Realignment Podcast, and that's from the Lincoln Network. Marshall, you're a busy man. Yes, and I have to say this. I say this every time I go on. That is the Lincoln Network, not Lincoln Project. In 2014, we really realized there are not enough presidents. We need to find new names, but it's led to lots of overlap there. So totally separate things. Whenever I talk to anyone on the right, I have to make that very clear. You know, we actually have to do the same thing because people constantly think we're part of the Federalist Society. <laughs> so it's a we feel the pain. Um, well, actually, it's much worse to be associated with the Lincoln Project. Yeah, it's like spare me. I'm like, okay, <laughs> who's like, who's like, man, like if you're on the right, I was like, I don't know. It seems like pretty good. If I, <laughs> it's not, it's not the end of the world. Uh, okay, Marshall is here because uh, there's a new sort of buzzy label that's floating around, especially in tech spaces. Um, but one of the themes that we discuss and probe, I think, endlessly on this podcast, and for good reason, is the the extent to which technology is essential to our politics and is a salient political topic, if not the most salient political topic, we're going to talk about Web3. And I want Marshall to explain it. I'm going to start by Marshall reading you a headline from NPR. This is from November 21st. It says, people are talking about Web3. Is it the internet of the future or just a buzzword? And I feel like that's a great way to frame the conversation. And as we go in, I just want to ask you to start off by giving your explanation for what Web3 is so that when folks see it circulating, what do you think they they sort of know how it's being defined in the industry? Yeah, so a really, 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 really quick disclaimer this conversation on Web3 is so early that there is no real expert or perfect authority. So everything I should am saying here should be taken with a grain of salt and comes from interacting with a lot of people who are building in this space. But you're definitely going to find different definitions of Web3 different places. Now that I've said that, here's the way to think about this. We were talking about this before the recording started. This idea of Web3 is about different eras in the technology industry. So there's Web1. There's web two, there's web three. Web one, this is basically described as read. Um, Web one was the 1990s. It's where you sign up for this thing called the internet. You probably use Netscape or Internet Explorer, and you could go read things on a forum. You could go to AOL and read your emails. That's what you can mostly do there. Now, we get into web two, which is basically the 2000s. You have the creation of social media platforms like Facebook. You have the creation of other platforms like Google. There's Twitter. This is the read and write era. So not only are you capable of reading your Gmails, but you also can write a Facebook post and that will be shared on a social platform. That can be a period where you can tweet that gets retweeted. You post a video on YouTube that gets shared. It's basically this era where you're not only re- you're not only reading products on the internet, but you're actually producing things beyond just direct communications. So this web two era has basically gone from roughly 2003 to basically the present day. The final bit here, and this gets us to web three, is this idea of we are gradually transitioning 
from the web two era to build a different type of internet that fulfills a lot of the promise of that web 1.0 era that wasn't hit during the same period. So for example, if the web one era was read and the web two era was read, write, the idea behind web three is read, write, and own. The own part effectively relates to two different ideas. So one is just this idea of the blockchain and cryptocurrency. So the idea, there are two ideas basically undergirding this Web3 transition, which once again is semi-hypothetical, but it's rooted in these two ideas. One, it's decentralized. So what that means is if you look at your experience on the internet during the Web 2.0 era, basically 04 to today, if you're on the right, especially you think about, man, I don't like how Facebook has all this power. I don't like how Twitter can censor people. I don't like how they, how to use the internet. I have to go to this big platform and basically live and act along the lines of whatever Mark Zuckerberg or the leader of Twitter, formerly Jack Dorsey, has to say. So in Web3, the idea is the internet will be much more decentralized away from big institutions and big companies, be much more focused on individual users owning their content, owning their data, owning their experiences and being rooted really in that space there. So that's where the read, write, own part comes. And the second part here is just the, the cryptocurrency part, which relates to the blockchain, which is the way you will achieve most of these ideas is through the, and this is you know where the you know relation to Bitcoin and currencies like Ethereum come in, this will actually be rooted within a blockchain. So there'll be actually like a record, there'll be a permanent ledger um, of of your of your data of your identity that exists outside of Google. So if if you the good way to think about this to wrap up is during Web two everything was about you using your Google address or your Facebook address to log into websites around the internet. The way that people think you're going to log into the internet during Web three will be you have your own individual wallet where it's actually something that you own and no institution could shut down or censor or do anything like that. And it seems that Web3, and that's the reason we kind of want to talk about this, is proliferating and becoming more and more, um, is, is becoming used more in these contexts is because people seem to feel like we're on the precipice of something different. And how important would you say, I mean, I think the answer is obviously enormous, um, but how important would you say blockchain is to this transition to what people are now terming Web3? Yeah, so it's it, it's incredibly important. It, it's the it it is if this all works out because once again, like we're at such early days. The way to think about this is this is the equivalent of the late 1980s in terms of the internet during Web 1.0. The point here is that because of the blockchain technology, because of the ability to actually build these decentralized wallets, which is what people refer to where your cryptocurrency is, st is stored, the ability to build these decentralized platforms and things actually makes all this possible without the innovation there. Uh, this would be on the table. And a quick thing, it, it, would be, it would be important to give two, two quick examples of what people are talking about. So there, there, there are two, there are two like really um, main ideas here. So one is you're seeing the proliferation of something people have seen called non-fungible tokens or NFTs. These are the things where people will see people selling digital art for a lot of money. You'll see someone selling a picture of something for $100 million. And a lot of people will see that and they'll say, wow, like that seems really silly. This is all basically a Ponzi scheme. But the way this was explained to me and the way that actually convinced me at an intellectual level, this is serious and interesting is once again, these NFTs 
exist on a blockchain. So if you purchase, let's say, let's say we take your Federalist logo and we create an NFT of it. If you were to purchase that NFT for the first time, you would actually just have one specific version of that NFT that exists on a blockchain. Mm. And once again, that doesn't sound particularly important. The joke people make is, okay, so I'll just right click and save it and there'll be a second version. But at this early stage, because that digital purchase you made of the NFT exists on a blockchain, there actually is just one version of that thing. So what that means is for the first time on the internet, you've introduced the idea of scarcity because the whole idea underlying like web 1.0 and web 2.0 and the way we basically interact today is that if something happens on the internet, there's infinite numbers of it. That's meant that, you know, there are infinite number of video clicks, there's infinite images. So at this early stage, what people should be interested in isn't the idea that the picture of the Federalist we just saved on, on a blockchain is worth anything. They should be interested in the idea that, wow, for the first time we found a way to actually make something truly unique and uncopyable on the internet. That's actually very interesting. Right. And it's sort of it, you, the parallel is obviously to, to fiat currency and the way that it's always been understood. Scarcity is obviously essential to that, but also essential to that is the value that it has independently and then also combined with its scarcity. And that's sort of what people have struggled to, uh, the skeptics of crypto have struggled to see how it's, it's a legitimate sort of, uh, replacement or re a legitimate competitor to fiat currency and, and is, has durability in the long term because there is no scarcity but this actually as you explain introduces that element yeah and the way to think about this is and this is what people so this is the picture why people should be excited about web3 we were talking earlier about how the how web3 people should be excited about the era and the moment a little less than the technology so if i came on here saying oh man everyone needs to buy my realignment nft that's not particularly exciting it'd probably make me a decent amount of money but that's not really interesting What's interesting is that for the first time in a long time, you have serious money from the venture capital industry and serious founders at the technology level and companies actually building new things that hypothetically you could compete with and could actually make a lot of the other ones irrelevant. So for example, look at how we are basically at this total dead end when it comes to tech policy regulation during the Web 2 era. It's, it's really actually helpful that Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, is testifying during all this and effectively. We talked about this on our podcast with uh, tech reporting Alex Kandrovich, who's like very center left, but he's very fair-minded. He said, the second time she testified, effectively no one in the news cycle cared and Republicans basically went after her because many of the solutions she puts forward are actually ones that would help the center left or the Democrats or even the left there too. So. We're not going to get regulation under Biden. We're not going to get regulation under any Republican because those same legislative logjams are basically going to happen. Because at the end of the day, during the Web 2 era, we as a society just actually cannot come to an agreement about what censorship looks like, what the public square looks like, how these companies should look like. There actually just is no consensus. The whole point of Web 3, why people on the right should be excited about it is – the whole point is there is no need to come to a consensus. There is no need to fight amongst all these big centralized players. The answer is, okay, what if we build technology that makes it so that a Facebook that's centralized is just not as relevant to people as a decentralized version? If we build a social network, let's say it's based upon the blockchain and people's individual blockchain identities or wallets, well, 
who exactly is the big player who could delete their account or censor them or delete their videos. That is the underlying promise. And maybe my realignment NFT has no value in the long term. Maybe that's just speculation. But I genuinely think there's someone in this audience right now who could think of the idea of, wait, what do we actually do if the internet allows for scarcity for the first time ever? Someone will come up with an actually interesting idea that will make a difference in a way that just saying, oh, I'm just going to make a right-wing Facebook competitor or a Twitter competitor or a Trump social network just isn't going to actually work. That, that, that's the moment of, that we're in right now is genuinely really exciting. We're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. The Economist recently reported American philanthropy is going woke and predominantly funding liberal causes. Do you want to help counterbalance this influence? If so, consider listening to Giving Ventures. It'll give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so individuals can prosper and thrive. Giving Ventures is a new podcast designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights several nonprofit efforts efforts, initiatives, and projects that leverage private philanthropy to solve public problems. Giving Ventures was joined recently by former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, now president of Young America's Foundation, where, in full disclosure, I also work, who shared with us what he's doing to preserve President Reagan's legacy and instill in future generations a similar love of God and country. In an earlier episode, J.P. DeGantz, president and CEO of Comunio, joined us to discuss what he's doing to strengthen marriages across the country. And Nikki Neely, president of Parents Defending Education, told us what she's doing to help parents engage with their local school boards. The show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust regularly engages with policy groups, student organizations, academic centers and civil society nonprofits that endeavor to limit government, grow personal responsibility, and strengthen free enterprise. If you care about the principles of liberty and if charitable giving is an important part of your life, Giving Ventures is the podcast for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on the latest episode by visiting donorstrust.org slash podcast. That's donorstrust.org slash podcast. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, and you said, um, and, and I actually misspoke when I was talking about scarcity versus value, the, the skeptics of Bitcoin so far have said there's no inherent value. I was saying scarcity, but it's, there's no inherent value. That's what skeptics would say and what and do say often. But what's so interesting uh, that you're talking about right here is that they're sort of tapping into a way to give things inherent value that are being traded in this space. And what's fascinating that you just mentioned is we don't really have a good legal framework. Like the whole point of Facebook right now is that everybody is on it so like there's no point to facebook if there's five facebook's because then you don't have everybody from high school on your newsfeed in a way that makes you keep sort of like hate scrolling over and over again um in a way that facebook once promised would bring us all so much closer to better closer together and change the world the sort of like tech answer to the end of history um so marshall why then or are these spaces already being corrupted by the Zuckerbergs of the world? Um, you know, who's really a competitor to Meta right now in the space of Meta, in the space that Meta occupies? Is it, could we just be seeing even more 
concentration and even more devil's advocate argument, even more centralization and even more power to some of these companies that are already problematic and that Web3 seeks to sort of undermine. So here's what's super interesting about this, and I love the way you set this up. So obviously, Facebook has changed its name from Facebook to Meta, referring to this idea of the metaverse. Here's why this is an exciting moment. It's true that Facebook has a big head start when it comes to these like virtual worlds, different interactions. They bought Oculus from Palmer Lucky back in the past really shows that despite everything, you could dunk on Mark Zuckerberg for all sorts of reasons. He genuinely is a real savvy business mind acquiring Instagram and Oculus back in the day before that was quite as proven out. Here's the thing. Here's why I'm totally optimistic. This is even me being a libertarian. Wow. Rare you know where I'm favorite everyone. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm never libertarian, but like I'm definitely <laughs> well aware of it. So because the problem is sometimes libertarians, especially in DC, they sound way too optimistic. So I want to separate this argument from the point they're making, which is, you know, where I'm not going to sign up to go on the metaverse, Facebook. Like, actually, like the only reason why I use Instagram is because that's what we basically built everything up on. But other than Instagram, I do not spend any time on Facebook. I went I went five months without logging into Facebook on my on my laptop that I'm recording this on. Um, I bought a new laptop. I didn't log into it. I didn't use it. I deleted the Facebook big blue app from my phone. The reality is that Mark Zuckerberg has just lost so much trust left, right, and center that Basically, no one is looking to get onboarded onto the metaverse on Facebook. Basically, no one trusts that Mark Zuckerberg is really is going to handle their their data properly. No one trusts that it's going to be a space you're going to spend time in. It's too tied up in their corporate rebrand. Because the thing that we understand this is, you know, older listeners um, who were you know really there at the start of the internet will remember that you know what the big dominant company during the 1990s or the, or the web, you know, 1.0 era, it was Microsoft. Mm. Microsoft um, with Windows, Internet Explorer defeating Netscape, they were this huge, completely dominant company. They outcompeted everyone. They bought everyone. People used to call Bill Gates, Darth Vader. They called Microsoft the big Death Star. Like, there, there's a reason why there was a massive government antitrust case against them in, you know, in the year 2000. Here's the thing. That antitrust case ended up not effectively going through, and it kind of didn't matter. It kind of didn't matter because as the internet transitioned from this period of just like reading, aka getting onto the internet, so Microsoft wins because Internet Explorer beats Netscape, well, the internet became about a bunch of other different things. Internet became search. So Google comes around, and Google this is before it's big bad Google today, but Google creates a better search engine than Yahoo. They create a better one than MSN, which is Microsoft's one. Microsoft creates Bing, but effectively no one really cares. The internet and the technology and the expectations actually changed. So the old incumbent player couldn't win. And basically it appears as if that is what's going to happen during this web three era when it comes to the metaverse. It, it should be said the metaverse isn't necessarily tied into the, the blockchain. It's more of a new technology that's coming about during this during this Web3 moment. So we should talk about it as Web3, not necessarily meaning a blockchain or cryptocurrency. But the point here is there's just total faith on my end that no one is clamoring to log into whatever Mark Zuckerberg did. Um, so it's not to say that there aren't antitrust cases to be made against Mark Zuckerberg. It's not to say that there aren't all these faults we could find on Facebook. 
But the hopefulness of this moment is that actually technology and the market are just making a lot of these debates that we had during the 2010s just not relevant. It doesn't really matter if Mark Zuckerberg was able to buy Instagram when people today think he should have been able to, if people are migrating off of Instagram to different platforms, which is happening right now. Now they're migrating to TikTok, which isn't like definitely not good from a Chinese perspective. But the, the point is that that old debate is just becoming irrelevant as the industry develops and grows. Yeah, I was actually just going to say, I'm bringing up the Microsoft antitrust case as such an important insight because all of these conversations we're having right now and that the boomers in Congress want to have about regulating Facebook and regulating social media companies, do you expect they will almost be rendered sort of, by the time anything actually passes, they would almost sort of be rendered outmoded um, again by the time it would it would actually be accomplished in Congress? Yeah, that's that's... That's the reality here, because the thing that makes me definitely not a libertarian is that sometimes you actually need the government to intervene. Antitrust is actually a very important feature. But from my perspective, government intervention is only good if there's an actual consensus that's being implemented. So right now, and this isn't this doesn't make people on the right happy, this make people on the left happy. But nothing annoys me more when people say like, oh, like it's so crazy that our government can't regulate big tech. It shows that our country's broken and nothing works. It's like, no, like actually it shows that our system does work because our society has no actual consensus on what Web2 social platforms should look like. Mm. I speak on the podcast to people on the left, I speak to people on the center, I speak to people on the right. All three of these groups have different ideas about what Web2 should look like. If you talk to Senator Amy Klobuchar, she will very seriously say Facebook's problem is that it's too open, that Mark Zuckerberg allows too many things, that there's too much disinformation. You talk to people on the right, like Senator Josh Hawley or Senator Ted Cruz, they always say that Facebook is too closed and too top down. These positions are irreconcilable, and that's why nothing has actually happened. If actually 60 to 70, let me put it this way, I could be convinced that our system is broken and that you know tech is corrupt and taking over everything. If actually 70% of America held the belief that Facebook should look like X, Y, or Z. Mm. But because it doesn't, we can't make a consensus, therefore the regulation won't happen. It's that simple. It's pretty straightforward. And also, guess what? Because of these antitrust things, obviously, I don't think Facebook is going to get broken up, nor do I think it would be particularly important for it to get broken up, honestly. But Facebook is not going to be able to acquire Web3 companies the way they were able to during Web2. So the way that Facebook handled Instagram's rise was they just bought Instagram. But Facebook's not going to be able to buy the next Instagram of the Web3 of Web3 because that's actually where the FTC and Congress were actually not allowed, allowed them to do this. It's already become an issue. These big Web2 platforms have already effectively been prevented from acquiring any more companies. So once again, I'm not throwing out antitrust. I am just saying that we as a society effectively need Web3 to work because no one I know is happy of how the status quo on the internet works. However, there's not going to be a top-down government-centric solution to that. So we actually need new companies, new ideas, new platforms that come about. And the last thing I'll add on this is what should be excited for the actual audience here is, hey, look, like what's cool about Web3 is that if you think the public square should be one way or you think it should be another way, actually go build a platform that actually exemplify those things. The whole thing that, you know, and you've heard this on the right, this is a point that Rachel Bovard likes to make, 
And people say, oh, if you're on the right, just go build your own Facebook. <laughs> and that's dunked on because you can't just build your own Facebook. It's like you said, we don't need a fifth or sixth Facebook. That, that, that's, that, that's beside the point. The point is during Web3, we are actually at a moment from the tech industry perspective where if you say, hey, I actually have this really interesting idea for how we could remake Facebook in a decentralized way, I guarantee you if you have some form of credibility or legitimacy, you will get funded to do that. That is very exciting. That can go a bunch of different ways, but that hasn't been true for a couple of years. That's that's what's really unique about this moment. Right, breaking up the market. Um, and on that note, I was listening to an uh, an interview, I think, with a TechCrunch reporter who said something fascinating, which was basically he's like, I don't know why people started using Web three. Like it, he said, it just started happening a few months ago, and that to me was a, a fascinating sort of quip. He didn't mean it seriously. It was just sort of an aside or a, a passing mention of that in conversation. But what's fascinating about that is I think the reason that uh, listeners and anybody who's paying attention to the news may see Web3 coming up more and more and more is because it sort of feels like we are on the precipice of something very different. And I'm curious, Marshall, if you buy that theory about the proliferation of the Web3 label, it's not necessarily, like you said, like meta is wrapped into this conversation, which is also like really predicated on blockchain, but those two don't really have anything to do with each other because it just sort of feels like on the one hand social media is rapidly snowballing into something very different meta and then on the other hand uh, our, our currency and web development and all of these other things are sm- snowballing into something that is sort of discernibly different too yeah and there's a funny fact we know why web3 is called web3 because this person tim o'reilly Excuse me. This person, Tim O'Reilly, wrote a blog post in the mid 2000s about Web 2. Um, so there's a, that's the nerdy exacting answer. I actually suggest that anyone who's interested search Tim O'Reilly's Web 2.0 essay because he wrote this right before Facebook blew up. So it really was really prescient and described this moment. But yeah, it's like you said, the reason why people are excited about Web 3, it's obviously there's a set of people who are making a lot of money off of NFTs, maybe doing things that are a little like less legitimate, plenty of people like that. But most people who I see organically interested in this idea aren't even, they're not selling things, they're not buying all this Ethereum or Bitcoin or any or Solana or anything like that. They just know for a fact that they do not like the way the internet turned out, left, right, or center. And this web three moment is actually a moment where we can organically as a society and non-organically, obviously, build something different. Because this, another thing that Web3 people say, which I think is so fascinating, and you even hear this happen from people who are center-left. They will talk about how Facebook is too centralized. Now, if you talk about disinformation and COVID and those issues, they would almost certainly say, oh, actually, I think that's largely fine, which they're obviously more than welcome to. But the Web2 tech conversation has become so polarized that we can't actually have a values-based debate or conversation about it. Every time you talk about Facebook censorship, by definition, that is wrapped up in Donald Trump, January 6th, the fallout, Lincoln Project, all those different things. It's impossible to actually have a conversation about it. But if you talk to a lot of these Web3 people, they will say things like, Look, if you look at the people who pioneered Web Web 1.0, they would say things like, yeah, we definitely didn't intend the internet to be this close. We thought the internet was going to be free and open and kind of weird and kind of different. And no one person would have control over it. That obviously didn't happen. So it's so important that you have people who in their day-to-day politics are almost certainly center-left Democrats, hearing them be open 
to a conversation about the future of the web that could actually non-politically engage a lot of people on the right, that's an actual breakthrough. And that's so important. And last but not least, I'll tell a quick story that is really important that will get a lot of people excited. Um, this is what got me excited. Um, did you hear about Constitution Dow? No. Okay, so this there's this thing called Constitution Dow. We, we talked about NFTs. There's this other category of Web3 tech that we need to talk about. It's called a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, or DAO. Basically, the way it works is it is a it is a group that is organized through something called um, governance tokens, um, which are effectively a type of cryptocurrency that one could purchase. And if you purchase the token, like let's say, so let me me put it this way, and I'll get into this in a second. The DAO that we're talking about was called Constitution DAOs. It created a token called People, um, because for short for We the People. Um, So if you wanted to join this organization, you bought People tokens using um, Ethereum which is a type of cryptocurrency. So the way it works is this, you you buy the people token and then you enter into the constitution DAO's um, organization. And the place where the decentralized comes in and the, for the D here for the decentralized autonomous organization is this organization has no hierarchy beyond the amount of tokens you have. So there's no CEO, there is no boss, there's no vice president of development. It's just people who are operating in this organization where they make their decisions because they've bought into the community's form of currency. So what happened was Sotheby's, the auctioneer, uh, about a month ago, announced they were auctioning one of the 13 copies of the Constitution. It's got a little mixed in the news, but the way it works is there were several copies of the Constitution that were made very, very early on in the 1780s and early 1790s. There's only 13 of these remaining, so they were going to auction one of them. So what happened was a group of people came together and said, hey, let's make a DAO called Constitution DAO, (laughs) where our objective is that we're going to purchase this copy of the Constitution. So here's how how it worked. And this is how it's different than Web2, which I'll explain in a second. So they they formed the DAO, which um, I'm not going to, it's a little technical. In fact, I'm not that aware of how this actually works, but they formed the DAO, people then bought tokens. Uh, And by buying tokens, they put money into the DAO. So they eventually raised um, around $46 million um, in Ethereum um, and tried to bid. Um, They ended up losing the bid. Um, Ken Griffin ended up winning the bid, which is ironic. He's a a, a big Wall Street um, billionaire type. But here's what the promise of Constitution DAO was. I referred to these tokens at the start of this anecdote as governance tokens. So the idea here is if you put money into the donation for Constitution DAO, you, Emily, could actually vote where the Constitution is placed. They had different museums who had reached out. You could say, I vote for the Constitution to go to a New York museum or for a Columbus museum or for a California museum. I vote to have the plaque say this, this, or that. That idea got people really excited because the idea was, well, like we could actually come together in this decentralized way 
and raise and do a project together. Because the way to think about this is, and people would often say this, like, okay, how is that any different than creating a Kickstarter? Well, it's different than a Kickstarter because you actually get governance over the way this asset would be managed. So like we could put money into the constitution Kickstarter, but after that money was given to whatever LLC was running the, was running the, uh, was running the actual project, I couldn't vote. It isn't shares. It's totally different. So that was an exciting project because A, this came together over seven days. They raised a lot of money. And it shows that we're actually coming into an era where people with energy could create new means of organizing. There's this other thing. This is my favorite doll, by the way. It's called Krauss House, named after Jerry Krauss. Um, anyone, obviously the manager of, of the Chicago Bulls who didn't come out looking too good during the last dance um, ESPN documentary. Their goal is to purchase an uh, NBA team um by raising money in the same way that constitution dow raised money so you're just seeing people actually come together and once again this might all not work out but it's actually just really fascinating to see a new style of governance and organization come about like there are people who say like hey like we need a social network but it's just a dow and it's not run by mark zuckerberg and I'm not quite sure how that would work. There are all sorts of problems. There are legal things. But the point is, it's actually just totally open. And if your listeners are interested, you can just search DAO on Twitter and you'll find a million different DAOs you could join and participate in. Now, the quick last non-tech triumphant thing I have to utter is um, I did a podcast episode with the Constitution DAO folks um, on the realignment. The one thing I didn't like about their project is there's something interesting when we talk about governance and tokens, which was... If I put in $5,000 to Constitution DAO and you, Emily, put in $500, I would have more governance rights than you would. Hmm. Okay, so like that isn't actually we the people. Because the whole point, if you listen to their rhetoric, and that's why it's funny for political people like ourselves to interact with tech, because sometimes tech doesn't get it. They're like, we're building upon the promise of the American, this was their rhetoric with Constitution. They're like, we're building upon the promise of the American Revolution. DAOs are this new style of organization, the same way that the Constitution was a new style of government. We're about we the people. And it's like, well, but wait, like the whole innovation with the US government, okay, excluding slavery, votes for women we're, we're focused on the idea here the idea was one person one vote it doesn't matter how much mark zuckerberg how much money mark zuckerberg has it matters that you two are just human beings and american citizens and you get to vote the idea that it's somehow fair to give more votes to who gets to decide where the constitution goes based on how much money was put in wouldn't make people very happy like if i just came in like there was a person who donated 10 million dollars um to the constitution dow in terms of their overall 46 million dollar raise <laughs> is it good to have that person get more votes than any other people i don't think so and they were super open about the fact that they had this they did a great podcast with um the the verge at decoder where one of their one of their contributors said oh yeah we, we thought about that and we were going to actually make a decision about that like as a group afterwards so the debate was is it one crypto wallet, one vote, AKA like when you purchase Ethereum, you need a wallet. So they're like, okay, so like you may have 10,000 or 10 million, you know, 10,000 shares or governance tokens, but you still only have one wallet. So maybe that was the right way. They're like, or maybe they could do it. And this is the conversation they're having, or maybe it could be that the more money you put in over time, 
you actually get less power with those shares. So maybe you get a bunch of shares up to the first $5,000, but after that, they get less and less and less and less value. That was all open to debate. Like there was a really big Discord server where all of these principles and ideas were debated. And I would challenge you this time, like when was the last time, like honestly, we saw our society, like our millennial age cohort, our gen, you know, even Gen Z's having the ability to make this sort of decision in a way that was just totally unregulated. There was no clear model. You're figuring out as you go, like it's actually just really cool. And that's what people should focus on less the like specific mechanics of whether this NFT is good or that DAO is good. It's just this moment that's so important. To that question, it does sort of remind me of like Napster and BearShare and Kazawa. It was just like a, the wild, wild west for a few years there. Um, and even like early days of pirating, it was just a totally different thing until, I mean, obviously it got regulated, um, but it, it does it does feel, and I guess maybe that answers the question that we're talking about is like, why are people suddenly sort of gravitating or describing the moment we're in as the the precipice or the verge of web three um but maybe that's it maybe it's because there there's just that sensation clearly that things are different right now yeah it's um it's not quite the same thing as getting on the stock market in 1997 it's not the same thing <laughs> as downloading kaza or napster <laughs> 2002, i'm really pulling out the deep cuts here um you know this isn't your sketchy limewire app but it is just this idea of early, early, early days. And the good news is, look, and this is the standard I have for whenever I talk of Web3 people. Remember the first time, do you remember, do you remember the first time you got Facebook? I sort of vaguely remember it was August of like 2006 or seven. See, same, I think we probably got on the same time, August 2007. I remember to this, once again, there's all these dunks we could have on Facebook now, but I remember the first time someone showed me Facebook. I remember exactly where I was. I was at debate camp and this person said, hey, check out Facebook. You should join. They just opened it up to high schoolers. It's like MySpace, except it's cleaner and less sketchy. I just heard that was shown how clean and nice the interface was. Mm -hmm. I was just instantly sold. Like, think about it this way. You know what I mean? Like, this is... This is my stand for what for when people should be less skeptical of Web3, which is, did I have to say, did someone have to sit down with you and Emily say, hey, listen, Emily, like we're in this Web 2.0 era and in Web 2.0, like you don't just read, but you write. No, they just were like, hey, check out Facebook. It's cool. What Web3 needs is a moment where you could just sit down and you could go, hey, Emily, here's this idea. No, not even here's this idea here's this new app or this new product. It's so cool. It makes podcasting better. It's more social. It's this, this, or that. That is when we will know, like we're really deep in it until we're there. It's 2001. It's 1994. There's plenty of time. There's a lot of work to do. And that's the real call to action here. You, you actually need people who are going to be the Mark Zuckerbergs who can actually just build a thing that's so good. I want to say web two or web three or web one or web eight. Um, Cause the last thing I'll add on this here is, and this is a real suggestion for people on the right. It's super important as you think about this space, not to get overly too focused on an idea. So for example, someone will say things like, Web3 is so great because we're going to build a Facebook that can't censor. You know, even that, that doesn't mean anything Um, because at the end of the day, Facebook still gets massive reach. You still have it. It's like you said, you summed it up really well and you explained my Facebook relationship. I could see my friends from high school and I could check out what they're doing. I saw that this person got married. I'm not going to see that anywhere else. That is an actual experience, Mm. right? Like censorship, censorship 
is an idea, it's not an actual experience because the dirty little secret here is that 99.9% of conservatives are not actually actively censored uh, on social media. You know, like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, RIP, are not going around taking away even like 5% of conservatives' Twitters. Although, Therefore, it like the Hunter Biden thing, for instance, they wouldn't let you post the article. Like even just sharing the article, their AI was booting people from doing that, even in DMs. But yeah, I see what you're so saying. That's a good, so that's a, that's a great example, but guess what? There's a reason why that incident did not actually see people just leaving. Right. Okay, but actually, Emily, you did you did the right thing, though. You focused on a specific example of a way their experience was limited. So I'm more speaking about the business side of this than like purely the political side, but that's the right example. Even that example is not enough to have people at mass be willing to abandon a social platform. As in, mm-hmm. if Facebook, if you were on the right and you actually could not use Twitter because the Twitter, you know, regime is just so anti-conservative, people would leave. But we're just not we're just not there yet. And frankly, I don't really think we're ever going to truly get there. So that means you can't just go to conservatives and say, like, hey, like there's no censorship on our platform or we never would have censored the Hunter Biden controversy because we couldn't have because we're decentralized. That, that isn't an actual argument, right? That, that doesn't actually get people to change behaviors because what you actually have to do is provide an affirmatively better experience. You have to say things like, actually, once again, this is why I'm a podcaster and not a programmer. I don't even know how you would build a better Twitter. We should be very honest with it. I actually, I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I don't know what a better decentralized Twitter looks like. But once again, that's what makes Mark Zuckerberg an actual innovator, which is that he was able to know, hey, wait a second. Well, here are the Winklevite twins, depending on who you ask. We're able to realize the problem of MySpace is that you don't, have it tied to your email at your campus. And if we build a version that's like that and is smaller and is more tied in together for cleaner interface, people will like that better. We're basically waiting for those types of people to come about. And then in 10 years, we'll hate them and that's how the cycle goes. But that's what's really important, really exciting right now. I hope people just caught that Marshall referred to the Winklevi twins. He, he used the proper plural form. They're Winklevi. It's very, <laughs> this is very important. This is the most technical thing we're going to hit tonight. <laughs> the Winklevi twins. Okay. So all of that, and I think you, Sagar, myself, and, and people like Rachel Bovard have always agreed that the censorship, ish- censorship issue really is downstream of much deeper, much bigger um, problems. And I, I think that's absolutely true. I want to ask you, as the host of The Realignment, which I said earlier, is absolutely one of my favorite podcasts. Um, it just brings, I think, maybe one of the most interesting slates of guests on, people who are real experts in their fields and have uh, don't always get a lot of platforms or a, a lot of space to sort of flesh them out and explain them. Um, but I want to ask you w- what Web3 means for our politics, and it's probably too easy, it's probably too early to say that, but we sort of preface this conversation by, by saying, you know, tech, in my opinion tech is the most important issue in our politics and culture it's it should be everyone's sort of primary lens into understanding what's happening but in this case what does specifically this transition to a new era in the internet what does that mean for our politics um in the sort of thirty thousand foot sense that we can uh, understand right now it basically means well actually let me put it this way we don't know what it means yet because it's so early it's the, you're asking me the right question, but right now, this is like the year 1994 and saying, what does the internet mean for our politics during Web 
it's mm-hmm. going to mean something, but there's no actual way of knowing. So I like to focus on the forward facing end. I like to focus on the backward facing end, which actually, no, let me put it this way. Here's what it means for our politics. No, but I guess this is still the backward facing part. The backward facing part here is that it means that more and more and more and more any institution that is just totally top down and centralized is going to continue having a harder and harder and harder time of navigating and interacting with itself. Mm. Any institution which relies on its credentials, any institution which relies on authority, on centralization, is going to have the hardest time, hardest time navigating these types of moments. It it means that, because once again, like I told you, I know plenty of center-left people who, when you take Trump and Mark Zuckerberg out of it, effectively say platforms have too much power to censor right now Mm -hmm. or we don't want to live in a world where there's too much censorship now i always push them because they actually don't really mean it in the web 2.0 context because to the letter and look like to like and they're like fine of thinking that to a letter they're like oh yeah like it's good that trump is off social media um so like (laughs) okay like how but but, if we put it this way it just matters for our politics that in, once you once I think everyone gets a jail, get a jail free card when it comes to any Trump discourse. Once you take Trump out of it, our generational cohorts are just less and less comfortable with the top down thing, with with whatever truth is. And look, this is a real problem for the Democratic Party and the center left because ultimately speaking, and once again, I, something I do decently on the realignments. I don't like to judge people for their views. Um, I think it's not really helpful when it comes to having useful discourse. Look, if you're a Democrat right now, you are a member of the party of institutions. Mm. You're the party of the CDC. You're the party of the White House. You're the party of legislation. If we live in a world where people are increasingly skeptical of any type of top-down thing, your job is to get harder and harder and harder. And what's so interesting to me is that it's just very hard to see this current crop of democratic politicians effectively understanding how at a rhetorical level, the world has changed. Because once again, crypto, Bitcoin, NFTs, DAOs, all that could be total BS. I know people who tell me that DAOs are going to replace the nation state. I know people who tell me that, you know, um, in the future, no one's going to start an LLC every, ever again. Everything's going to be a DAO because who wants top-down leaders? I think that's ridiculous. Um, these things are much more, much more fluid than that. That being said, and this is where ideas actually do matter, what matters is that there's a massive constituency of people who like being told we should live in a world where people cannot tell you what to do in the same way they do already. This is different than like traditional DC political libertarianism. It's just a little more technologically based and is also a little less political. That is going to cause a sea change of politics. And it's just really, I'm just so curious how democratic politicians navigate that dynamic once Trump is off the stage. Uh, Because once again, like plenty of like left-leaning Democrats are totally fine with top-down control when it's used against their very direct and immediate political opponents. But as we're talking about these new ideas or new systems, who knows if that same thing is going to be true? And that was going to be my last question to you is, 
does the does the this dawn of web3 or the new era in the internet make a realignment between the sort of dissident right or or maybe i'll say the anti-establishment right and the anti-establishment left um the populist right and the populist left the young right and the young left however people prefer to describe it does it make it easier in a sense or are there sort of are there barriers or obstacles to a realignment that we're not even thinking about right now on the horizon yeah, it's it's really interesting, and this is where this is interesting because I don't know if you've noticed this, but you should start looking at this more. If you look at a lot of like crypto people, they're super anti-government. They're super. Yeah. They're talking about like you know money printing. They're talking about how a state doesn't work. That agenda is totally incompatible with any type of socialism. Some of the most anti-socialist people I know on Twitter are like serious big, not just Bitcoin, but just crypto crypto-focused accounts. So I don't actually, and this is actually interesting. This is an interesting point. Like, I don't know what socialism has to say about this moment. Um, now, I know what something a little more libertarian has to say about it. Like, so I, I get what UBI has to say about this moment, which is like, hey, look, we believe there's a state. Government's going to exist. People have needs. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer people universal basic income, and we are going to let people figure it out for themselves. Like we all have this wealth as our society. We'll just redistribute UBI to everybody. We'll keep Social Security. We'll keep Medicare, whatever. It's hard to see what – it's near impossible to pass massive universal health care in, in a political situation where people just are totally skeptical of top-down government. Um, and, and that's a serious problem. That's why, that's why I don't know what, I don't know what's here for the populist left. And also, frankly, I think that's interesting for the populist right is something that the populist right likes to talk about is like using the state to impose like the vision of society. Yes. That is just as incompatible with this as is both. So what I think the reality here is going to be, and this is why I like the realignment to pitch myself is like, you have to actually think about this stuff. You kind of take a disinterested perspective. I think the populist right the Bernie socialist left are just artifacts of 2017, 2018. And whatever is going to come next, will have certain insights from the two of them. So the populist left is super anti DNC. That's going to be a thing. Mm. The populist right, you know, speaks to the fact that most people don't care that much about Ronald Reagan or hate the left or want to own the libs. Those things are true, but that still like, isn't the thing in both cases and whatever's going to come next is, and this is where actual political talent comes from the politicians who are going to dominate in the 2030s so they honestly think the 2020s are going to be a lost are going to be a lost decade either way um, effectively until trump leaves the stage um, either with a loss or just by you know eventually just like transitioning away from politics permanently you are going to eventually just see a world where politicians are going to say hey i'm a democrat but I get that my constituency doesn't like top-down things. I'm maybe not going to appoint Francis Haugen as my main person to talk about this issue. That's what I'm really interested to see. I, that is such a that is such an interesting answer because it speaks to the way that you have these poles, both within the right and within the left, drifting further apart on the issue of control and centralization. And I think the pandemic has really conditioned a lot of people um, more than I think uh, people actually realize has conditioned uh, some folks to really crave centralization and control amidst 
chaos and a lot of reasons to legitimately be afraid. And it's pushed so many other people away from that and, and away from centralization, centralization and picking up on your point about how rampant that ideological, that anti-establishment ideology is sort of on a transpartisan basis in the blockchain community and in the, the broader sort of that space. That's really, really interesting. And I do, I wonder how that plays out immediately um, as some of these conversations start to unfold. Yeah, and the honest answer is we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, that's early days, but what we can know is, and this is why I always stress, focus on, focus on the themes. The theme here is, wow, like a huge percentage of younger people, once you take politics, politics out of it, don't like top-down things. Now, there's a variety of different responses to that, but that's a dynamic people need to really follow. And that's how you're going to really understand what the political talent is going to be. People who aren't just focused inherently on the past, um, but and, and also are not too rooted in the present. Like that's the other, and this is a problem that the antitrust right focuses on too much, just too much. I, I think there's just too much energy on, I should put it this way. My critique of the populist right is that there is just so much frustration with the dead end of a certain type of libertarianism. Like, you know, it's 2014, we're obsessed with the export import bank. There's a, there's a, there's a dunk on how ineffective that was, which will, which causes people just to actually throw all of it out. Um, Cause this is really actually my last example. My favorite one for this is I love when people in the populist right are like, Oh my gosh, Trump was deplatformed uh, or you know, Parler was deplatformed. De we need to break up Amazon and say, hey, guys, you realize that it's the actual employees of Amazon who don't want Parler. Um, there was very serious polling of this. Even if you broke up Amazon Web Services into its own company, who you know who also kicks Trump off of that platform? Everyone kicks Trump off of that platform. Just as higher ed is dominated by liberals, so is tech. So your problem isn't even the, the existence of Amazon. You just don't like how there are these things and these companies that have certain amounts of power over something. Like you could launch a startup of four people. That startup would also most likely dump Trump after January 6th too. So I wish more people on the populist right would engage with the thought of like, hey, like, what does it actually look like to build a space where this top-down control just doesn't matter as much? Uh, I'd be interested in less, you know, thought boy, um, big Twitter thoughts, weird essays from populist right people and more people who are like, hey, you know what's definitely not going to happen? Some type of Josh Hawley legislation, like it literally isn't going to happen. Therefore, I'm going to start coding. Uh, I would I would actually love to unironically. This isn't like a learn to code call. This is more of a like learn to build call. Because I think that's the biggest problem with the populist, right? Because right now, like all the build energy is like, oh, I could build a magazine or I could start like a weird, you know, Twitter chat or I can write an essay. Like that isn't actually the building that's necessary. Like it's actual, like real generic insert cringe capitalism reference building. And that's what I wish people in the populist right would do. And until I start seeing that, I'll start, I'm not going to take people in that cohort as seriously as I think many of them want them to be taken seriously. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's so easy for people to sort of get uh, mired in these abstract conversations that really don't go anywhere or have much value. Um, Marshall Kosloff, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Emily.
such a good conversation. Marshall is the is an executive producer at On Deck, where he, especially if you're interested in more of his thoughts on, on these topics, you can go listen to The Deep End, his podcast over there. He's a media fellow at the Hudson Institute. He, Hudson Institute. He's also a co-host of the Realignment podcast, which is produced by the Lincoln Network, not the Lincoln Project, as Marshall was sure to uh, be sure that the distinction is abundantly clear there. Um, I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.